If you've got a Bible with you, would you come with me to Romans chapter 11? Romans chapter 11 and the last few verses. Romans 11 verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I'll give you two reasons for listening to these verses. If you're a Christian... Listen, because we're going to use them to hear what we should be like as a church. And we've heard over the last two weeks why that should matter to us. For example, last week we heard the church is like a pillar that holds up and displays the truth about Jesus that everyone needs. So it should matter to us what the church should be like, and we're going to hear something of that from these verses. If you're not a Christian, listen to hear what God is like. And that should bring you down onto your knees, humbled before him. There are two of many reasons for listening to these verses. Now, this message is part of a series we've been beginning the week, uh, not the week, the year, by setting a vision for us as a church. What should we be doing as a church? And actually, something's gone out to church members, uh, writing a bit about this and displaying it. And Ben, could we have program on the screen? shows some of the things that we should be doing. Or maybe all the things we should be doing could be summarised this way. Looking up, a church that's focused on God. Reaching out, a church that is spreading the good news and pointing people to Jesus. Coming closer, people who are coming closer to Christ, and as a result, coming closer to each other, loving each other. Maybe everything we should be doing could be summarised as captured uh, captured in those three things. Looking up, reaching out, coming closer. Thanks, Ben. We'll get rid of that now. Today is about looking up. We need to be a church that is looking up to God, that's focused on God, that's totally taken up with God. A church isn't like a business. It can't survive by human efforts. It can't flourish by strategy and planning. Those things are good, but they're not sufficient. Those things are important and helpful, but they're not enough. We need to be a church that is God-focused and knowing God. And I want to use Romans 11, verse 33 to 36, to show what I mean. What we're going to do is look at what the verses mean, and then apply that to us as a church, And we're going to do that three times. And we're going to spend most of the time on the first one. So you'll find we will have spent quite a while on the first one, but the next two will be fairly rapid. Here's the first one, a worshipping church. From verses 33 to 35, we need to be a worshipping church. Now, here we have an outburst of worship. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to Romans, finds himself overflowing with praise. Let's spend a bit of time seeing what provoked that praise, what caused the worship to burst out of him, so that we also are bursting with worship. 
overflowing with praise. First of all, God's riches. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches of God. What riches is Paul talking about here? What are the riches of God? Well, the Apostle Paul has been describing riches. If you were to look back at the same chapter, verse 12, chapter 11, verse 12, and have a quick glance over the verse, you'd see the word riches comes up three times in that verse. Riches, three times in verse 12. And that's part of a a, a section where Paul has been telling about God pouring out his good gifts to millions of people. God's riches are not the riches of a miser sitting in a mansion, keeping his money to himself. Riches here means blessings poured out, good gifts poured out to millions of people. And Romans is a description of those gifts poured out. It's explaining good news that says God doesn't just just about grudgingly let off people who've sinned a bit. Now it tells good news that God pours out full forgiveness, adoption into his family, the work of his spirit, an inheritance in heaven forever for people who have sinned again and again and again. It's about God pouring out generosity on undeserving people. He's rich and he's wise. Not good enough just to be rich. He's also wise. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God. This letter of Romans, especially in chapters 3, 4 and 5, has been about how God wisely can put into practice his riches. How God can deal with this problem. How can he avoid punishing people who deserve to be punished? whilst also upholding justice. And Romans' answer is, wow, the wisdom of God, he can do it this way. The Son of God took our punishment in our place. He could because he had no sins of his own to be punished for. He could because he's the Son of God and he's strong enough to take it. He could because he is one with his people. Not some stranger at a distance thousands of years ago, but one with us. And so he could stand in our place, take our punishment and it still be justice. And so Paul bursts out with praise. Oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. He is rich and he is wise. And he also, verse 33, has knowledge. How does that one fit in? He has not the depth of God's riches and his wisdom, but also his knowledge. This one might sound like a bit of a letdown. How does God have knowledge? God knows how many fish are in the Pacific. Can't have a guess how many fish are in the Pacific? I wouldn't have a clue. Is it in millions or billions or I don't know? But God knows exactly. And how many atoms there are in the sun? Oh, wouldn't have a clue about that one either. But God knows how many atoms are there in the sun? But Romans hasn't been about creation and God's knowledge of creation. Romans has been about the gospel. And the knowledge it has talked about has been God's knowledge of his people. It's personal knowledge. It's not just factual knowledge, how many atoms in the sun, it's personal knowledge. In fact, it has talked about God foreknowing his people 
And this also is personal. It isn't just before the world began, God knew that in July 1976, there would be a baby boy born and his name would be Joseph Pettit. He did know that, but it isn't just that. It's that God knew me and he saw all about me and he was appalled at my sinfulness. And yet for some reason, he still loved me and said, I'm going to have him as one of my people. That's God's sort of knowledge, personal, loving knowledge. Verse 33 is about the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, but they are so deep, it's telling us, that we wouldn't be able to figure them out for ourselves. They're just too deep for us to see to the bottom of them. Children, I wonder, can you swim to the bottom of the swimming pool and have a look around? I expect there are some here who can. If it's an ordinary swimming pool, like our town centre one, if you're a good swimmer, you could swim to the bottom and have a look around. What about the Mariana Trench? Could you swim to the bottom of that and have a look around? If you don't know, it's sometimes called the Philippine Trench. It's, it's part of the ocean. And it is 36,000 feet deep. And if you find that hard to picture, it's 11,000 metres deep. And if that's still hard to picture, if you put Mount Everest in it, it would still be 2,000 metres underwater. Children, any chance of swimming to the bottom of that and having a look around? You would be more likely to manage that than to get to the bottom of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge and figure them all out. That's what verse 33 is saying. They're so deep, they are, verse 33, unsearchable. They're beyond tracing out. Verse 34 says something very similar. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? It's just beyond us to figure it out ourselves. But actually, verse 34 is saying something more also. What do you think the answer is to the questions in verse 34? We've got two questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been God's counsellor? Who's given God advice? What's your expected answer? No one. No one can figure out God's mind. He didn't take advice from anyone. No one was alongside him being his counsellor as he planned all this. No one. But actually, that's not quite the answer. Not quite. These verses, like so many of the writings in the New Testament, draw on the Old Testament and draw on the wisdom writings and the prophecy of the Old Testament. And if you were to go back to those writings, you would find they, they picture wisdom as a person working alongside God, knowing God's mind, being God's fellow workman. Wisdom is pictured like a person. And you get to the New Testament and you find Jesus is wisdom. He's the one who knows God's mind. He's the one who works alongside God. Jesus has made known to us what we could never figure out or discover for ourselves. The depth of God's wisdom and riches and knowledge. Let's move on to verse 35. Verse 35, you then have God's uncompelled generosity. Uncompelled generosity. Now, who do you give gifts to? Not that far off Christmas. I mean, not that long since Christmas, is it? 
Yeah, just about a month ago, who did you give presents to? Well, you probably give presents to relatives, because you ought to, because they're related to you. There might be some people you give presents to because you, you just feel expected to. They've given to you, you'll give to them. There might be some people that you want to give presents to because you're grateful to them. They've done something for you. Often our presents have some sense of obligation about them. Not always. And the obligation might be a very gentle one, but often there's some sense of obligation. I, I ought to give to that person. Never with God. Never with God. Verse 35. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? With God, there's none of that sense of obligation. It is just uncompelled generosity. No one can ever complain, God owes me. He's given to us without any pressure, without any obligation, without any paying us back for anything. So again, what's the, what's the expected answer to the verse 35 question? Who has ever given to God? Who should God repay? Expected answer, no one. But again, that's not quite the answer. It's not quite the answer. Because there is one person who's given to God, and his name, of course, is Jesus. And he's given to God everything he required. A perfect, righteous, obedient life. And God has repaid him. The Bible says God has exalted Jesus to the highest place and, and he's on the throne of the universe because of what he gave God. A righteous, perfect life. There is one person being repaid by God. Now, there's, I've just skated briefly over these verses, 33 to 35. I'm sure you recognise there's so much more here, but I hope you've heard enough to know two things. One is how wonderful God is. We should be bursting with worship and overflowing with praise. And the other is, the way to know God and receive his riches is through Jesus. He's the one who deserves everything from God, so you need to belong to him. You need to be trusting him to receive these riches from God. But I want this morning to particularly apply this to us as a church. I can't claim that's the aim of Paul here in Romans chapter 11, but it is a valid application. So I want to apply this to us as a church. The church is not just an organisation for getting a job done. By the way, Peter, would it be best if I come off this mic and onto that one? What do you think? Try to get rid of that fuzz. The church is not just an organisation for getting a job done. Whether that job is evangelism or teaching or discipleship or whatever it is, the church is an organisation for doing those things, but it isn't just an organisation for doing them. The church is a gathering of God's people got together in God's presence to meet with him and bow before him. The church must be a worshipping church. The church as a whole must be like Paul was as an individual, bursting with praise because we've seen something of the gospel. In fact, all those other things we're to do, teaching, evangelism, discipling people, we won't manage unless we are first a worshipping church. I'll put it this way. 
Have you ever heard a phrase, don't trust a thin chef? Ever heard that? Don't trust a thin chef. Sorry if any of you are cooks and are thin, but apparently we shouldn't trust you. Why not? Why not trust a thin chef? Because if someone has cooked an expensive meal for you, and, and is in master chef-like tones with all of those wonderful words they use, describing this expensive meal and why you should appreciate this meal, it's not very convincing if he looks like he never eats more than boiled cabbage. It just doesn't look like he really enjoys the food. You want your chef to have tasted for himself that the food is good. Well, we can't tell people to taste and see that the Lord is good if we haven't tasted for ourselves. We need to be a church full of fat chefs. That's what we should be, a church full of fat chefs. Because we are regularly tasting for ourselves the Lord is good. And not just years ago when you were converted, but now, frequently, again and again, tasting for ourselves that the Lord is good. So we can convincingly, because we are convinced, say to others, taste and see the Lord is good. You can know him also. We must be a church full of fat chefs. And so we must be a worshipping church. We need to be constantly fueled by this gospel that caused Paul to overflow with praise. A worshipping church. Next to a shorter We need to be next a depending church, a depending church. Now, here is a statement that is bold and doesn't need any small print or any footnotes. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Because God is the creator, once there was nothing except him and all things come from him. No small print, no footnotes, no exceptions. All things come from him. Amazing. But again, Romans isn't really about creation. It's about the gospel. And this verse has a context. What are the all things that Romans has been about? I'll just give you a flavour of a few. I'm sure I haven't covered all of them. But I'll give you a flavour of, of a few of the all things Romans has been about. It's... It's been about the righteousness we need. It all comes from God. Chapter 3, verse 21, I'll read to you. 3, verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. We need to be right with God. It comes from him. The solution to our sin. That's come from him. Chapter 5, verse 6. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. It all came from him. Being able to fight sin, the strength to fight sin, where does that come from? That comes from God too. Chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by our sinful nature, God did by sending his own son. What about even how we receive all this? Whether we ever turn to God in the first place, even that has come from him. Chapter 9, verse 15. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It all comes from him, even the decision in the first place. 
Romans has made the case that we are totally dependent on God. Everything comes from him. Now, let's apply this to us as a church. The church's great commission is to make disciples for Jesus. People who turn from going their own way to living his way. Now, how are we going to get on doing that? Turning people from going their own way to going his way. Children, you see those trees outside there? How would you get on if you thought, I don't like the direction they're facing. Let's turn them round. Yeah, I think they should face the other way. Let's turn those trees round. How are you going to get on? You can't do it. And you're even less likely to turn a sinner from going his own way to going Jesus' way. We just can't do it in our own strength. We must be a depending church, depending on God to work, depending on his power, knowing that we need him. Now, that is straightforward and that is obvious and that is accepted by all Christians, I think, in theory. But in practice, do we depend on God? In practice, how do we depend on God? How does depending on God happen for a church's practice in practice? This way, urgent, eager, united, praying to him. Take, for example, the first New Testament church. You can read about it in Acts. And, and it's a thoughtful, hard-working, well-organized church. It needs to be. But the thing you keep reading about it is it's a church of urgent, eager, united praying to God because they knew they depended on him and his power. Let's have another diagram then. We as elders sent out to church members a bit about our vision as a church and it included this diagram. Think of the different activities of the church as like wheels. Now there are more than four, it just would clutter the diagram. So I've just put four on. We've got outreach to seniors. We've got outreach to internationals, we've got our children's work, there's personal witness and there's, you could think of various other, this is not just a four-wheeled car. And think of the word of God, teaching the Bible, and prayer as like the engine to make the wheels turn. Do you get the picture? The word of God and prayer are like the engine, and the activities are like the wheels, and they are turned by the engine. I hope you got the picture. It's fairly straightforward. Okay, Ben, we can, I think, remove that. My family used to have a Picasso. Not an expensive painting, but a fairly cheap car. And I drove it out of our drive and got onto the road and it stopped. And the engine was going, but the wheels weren't turning. And if I've understood rightly, the drive shaft had fallen apart. Engineers afterwards can tell me if I, I might be talking rubbish, but my understanding was the drive shaft had fallen apart. So however much the engine went round, it didn't turn the wheels. The wheels need to be connected to the engine. And we as a church need our wheels, the different activities, to be connected to that engine, the word of God and prayer. So, think of the activity of the church you serve in. Can you think of an activity of the church you serve in? Think of it as a wheel. You need this attitude. This wheel will get nowhere unless it's attached to the engine. So I and my team, if there is a team of you that serve together, 
need the church to be praying for this. We need a connection between our wheel and the engine. So I'll come along to the prayer meeting and I'll let them know what's going on in our activity. So the church prays for us and we together pray for all the different wheels of the church. Now, I know not everyone can get to the prayer meeting. I know there are practical difficulties. But everyone should have this attitude I've described. Whatever the church does, it needs that connection to the engine. Praying together because we must be a depending on God church. Not just in theory, but in practice. Here's the last one. The last one, a God-glorifying church. Very last line of this little hymn of praise. Last line, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, you could put the emphasis here on, uh, on different words. I'll pick out two. First of all, you could put the emphasis on him. To him be the glory. That must follow from what we've just heard. Because if everything comes from him, if everything is through him, he must get the credit. We mustn't take any for ourselves. We must give all credit to God. It all, all this generous love, all this amazing wisdom and riches come from him. He must get the credit to him. Or you could put the emphasis on the word glory. To him be the glory. If we've taken in anything of what God is like and what he's done, we say his splendour, his generosity, his love must be displayed. We say it is an injustice, it is completely wrong that there are not more people saying, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. People, there should be more people bursting out like that, giving glory to God. Well, let's apply this to, a, to us as a church. Our aim for everything we do must be the glory of God. It must be that God's glory is made known. Now, again, that is straightforward and obvious and accepted by all Christians in theory. But in practice, it often gets lost and it gets swept aside as other motives and other agendas eclipse it. I'll give you an example. I used to travel in Zambia quite a bit, often by bus, travelling across Zambia. And on the better buses, they would show films. Rubbish films. Really rubbish films. Thankfully, the sound was almost never working, so you didn't have to listen to these things. But there were these, like, cheap imitations of Hollywood. They had all of the cheating husbands and flirty wives and fighting of Hollywood, but in a cheaper version. And then when the film had finished, do you know what would come across the screen? Across the screen would come the words, to God be the glory. That's amazing. Yeah? You just, if you were unfortunate to look that direction, seen a load of rubbish. And then it would come, to God be the glory. You know, you can't do that. You can't claim to God be the glory when he's been forgotten and it's all been about catering for human tastes. And we can't say as a church to God be the glory if what we sing is all about whether we enjoy the song or not. Or our thoughts about what the church should do are all about what suits us. Or if we treat the church like a social club and it's about us feeling comfortable. 
We can't actually do all of those in practice and then just put across the screen afterwards to God be the glory. And that doesn't wash. In so many ways, it is so easy for us to get sidetracked from having everything must be about this. It's all for displaying, making known the glory of God and giving him the credit. That's why we need to be a worshipping church, continually getting amazed at God again. So we overflow with, to him must be the glory. What we heard this morning, three things. We must be a worshipping church, a depending church, and a God-glorifying church. They're all really basic. They're all really straightforward. I imagine that every Christian accepts we must be those things. But we won't be that church. We'll drift away from that. We could look successful and get a name for being alive while being dead. Unless we are continually looking up and focused on God. Seeking him, asking him to meet with us and making himself known to us so that we taste and see for ourselves that the Lord is good. Let's pray that God would do that for us now.